0: I want to start with a story. We all have probably, if we know anything about history, have heard this story. Um, Many know the story of Dunkirk. Many know what happened at Dunkirk. But if you haven't, Dunkirk was a town that had a beachhead. It had a, a, a part that came out and it made it where big ships could come and come into port. This place, during the Second World War, at the beginning when Hitler had brought his blitzkrieg through Belgium and then into France, had trapped over nearly 400,000 men in Dunkirk. Their backs were against the wall. There was no hope of escape, nor victory at that time. So on May 26, 1940, there was an operation called Operation Dynamo. And in this operation, the British Army or the British Navy asked anyone who had a fishing boat, a boat of any kind with a motor on it in England, of that side of England, the English Channel side, they asked them to come and rescue their soldiers. So that day, a 1,000 boats crossed the English Channel, some multiple times, to ferry across men. Their highest hope was to save 45,000. But on that day, 338,000 men were evacuated, British and French soldiers, from France from Dunkirk. And on June fourth, 1940, Churchill gave a speech that many of us have probably heard the end of. A speech that he had planned a week prior to that date. So he didn't know what was going to happen. He thought he was going to be describing even worse circumstances. So he goes into his speech, he talks about all that had happened, how they were hemmed in, and and I'm just going to quote a few things that he says, talking about the situation that they were in. And it's interesting that though they were in this situation, they didn't give up. And one of those states was, He said, Their sole line of retreat was a single port and its neighboring beaches. They were pressed on every side by heavy attacks and far outnumbered in the air. And he later says, The enemy attacked on all sides with great strength and fierceness, and their main power, the power of the far more numerous air force, was thrown into battle, or else concentrated upon Dunkirk and the beaches. So just imagine... There's three over almost 350,000 men on beaches like sardines, just, and you have bombers and planes from the enemy coming over to, to take life, like sardines. Pressing in on the narrow exit, both from the east and from the west, the enemy began to fire with cannon upon the beaches, by which alone the shipping could approach or depart. They sowed magnetic mines in the channels and the seas. They sent repeated waves of hostile aircraft, sometimes more than a hundred strong, in one formation, to cast their bombs upon the single pier that remained, and upon the sand dunes upon which the troops had their eyes for shelter. Their U-boats, one of which was sunk and the other motor launches, took their toll of the vast traffic which now began, For four or five days an intense struggle reigned. All their armored divisions or what was left of them together with a great masses of infantry and artillery hurled themselves in vain upon the ever-narrowing, ever-contracting appendix within which the British and French armies fought. this, This description describes a lot of what I think some of us have felt like. We feel like whatever we're going through... That's us. The enemy's attacking from all sides. We, we feel like, is there any hope? Can we, can we come out of this victorious? Well, later on in his speech, he talks about, he says, talking about the saving of these men, he says, The Royal Air Force engaged the main strength of the German Air Force and inflicted upon them losses at at least four to one. And the Navy, using nearly 1,000 ships of all kinds, carried over 335,000 men, French and British, out of the jaws of death and chain, to their native land and to the tasks which lie immediately ahead. We must be very careful not to assign to this deliverance the attributes of victory. Wars are not won by evacuations. But there was a victory inside this deliverance, which should be noted. It was gained by the Air Force. Many of our soldiers coming back have not seen the Air Force at work. They saw only the bombers, which escaped its protective attack. They underrate its achievements. I have heard much talk of this. That is why I go out of my way to say this. I will tell you about it. He goes on to talk about that. And then he talks some more about the situation. Against this loss of over 30,000 men we can set, a far heavier loss certainly inflict upon the enemy, but our losses in material are enormous. We have perhaps lost one-third of the men we lost in the opening days of the Battle of 21st March 1918. But we have also lost as many guns, nearly 1,000 in all our transport, all the armored vehicles that were in the Army in the North. This loss will impose a further delay on the expansion of our military strength. So they, they have, they've evacuated this many men, but they have, still have enormous losses. It seems hopeless, honestly. And in describing the enemy right before he calls them to fight, he says, We are sure that novel methods will be adopted. And when we see the originality of the malice, the ingenuity of aggression which our enemy displays, we may certainly prepare ourselves for every kind of novel stratagem, and every kind of brutal and treacherous maneuver. I think that no idea is so outlandish that it should not be considered and viewed with a searching, but at the same time, I hope, with a steady eye. We must never forget the solid assurance of sea power and those which belong to the air power if we can be locally exercised. If it can be locally exercised. I mean, the enemy... If you didn't know he was talking about Hitler in Germany, you would think that he's talking about the devil. Doesn't, it, doesn't this seem to be the, the picture? But this is what he says. The very end of his speech, you've, this is probably what you have heard. He says, We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and the oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island, or a large part of it, were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until... In God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to rescue, to the rescue and the liberation of the old. I like that line where he's saying, whatever the cost, we're going to fight on the beaches, we're going to fight on the landing, we're going to fight in the fields and the streets and the hills. doesn't matter. We're not giving up. We have a hope. And he was looking to the new world, the United States, to help. But we have a greater hope. And that's the hope that I want us to see this morning. I want us to see that no matter the circumstances we face, we have hope. So turn to 1 Samuel chapter 30, 1 through 19. And then it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev. And on Ziklag, and had overthrown Ziklag, and burned it with fire. And they took captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone, and carried them off, and went their way. When David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lift up their voices and wept, until there was no strength in them to weep. Now David two wives had been taken captive, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. For all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God." Then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, please bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? And he said to him, Pursue, for you will surely overtake them, and you will surely rescue all. So David went, he and the six hundred men who were with him, and came to the brook Besser, which... Where those left behind remained. But David pursued, He and four hundred men, for two hundred were too exhausted to cross the brook Besser remained behind. Now they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and gave him bread and ate, and they provided him with water to drink. They gave him a piece of fig cake and two clusters of raisins and he ate. Then his spirit revived, and he had not four. He had not eaten bread or drink, drunk water for 3 days and 3 nights. David said to him, "To whom do you belong? And and where are you from?" And he said, "I am a young man of Egypt, a servant of Amalekite, and my master left me behind when I fell sick 3 days ago." We made a raid on the Negev of the Cherithites and on that which belongs to Judah and on the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. Then David said to him, Will you bring me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will bring you down to this band. When he had brought him down, behold, they were spread over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines, and from the land of Judah. David slaughtered them, From the twilight until the evening of the next day and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and rescued his two wives. But nothing of theirs was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken for themselves. David brought it all back. This story... Honestly, I, I had read this speech, and I was thinking, Lord, there's got to be a story that's similar to this speech. And then I, I realized, wait, Ziklag is an example of this. Because it, it inspired me to fight. And that's the thing, we can't live weeping. That's the problem. If we are still weeping, there's a problem. We're living in the past. We're living in what has happened instead of finding in God what we need so the context of this verse is really important in chapter 28 we, we're seeing a contrast between Saul and David in chapter 28 David has no way to contact God he has no way of knowing who God is and talking to God God will not talk to him so what does he do he goes to a fortune teller, or a, I don't know if you would call her a witch, but a woman who he should not have been going to. And so he goes there, and he asks her to pull up, to call up Samuel. And then she's like, oh wait, you lied to me, you're Saul. Because he told her he was some somebody else. And Samuel's like, why are you calling me up? And he said, because God won't talk to me. And Samuel says... Uh, Why do you think I would talk to you if God won't talk to you? (laughs) Why do you think God's going to give you something through me if he won't talk to you? But then Samuel tells him that he and his son are going to die in the battle the next day. So even though he has this word, he goes out and fights the next day, and we don't see that actually till the end of this chapter. Chapter actually chapter thirty one, which follows, but and then verse twenty chapter twenty nine is the story of David. He's moved to Ziklag. He's run from Paul, or this is the last time he's run from Saul. The last time that he has decided, I can't stay in the land of my people, so he goes to Ziklag. He becomes friend with the king of Gath of the Philistines. And then the Philistine king says, Hey David, we're going to go fight Israel in Jezreel. The Jezreel Valley, come up with us and fight. David, shockingly, doesn't ask the Lord if it's okay to go. I have a feeling he was afraid if he said no, the king of Gath would get suspicious about all the lies he had told about attacking the people of Israel. But he goes up, he gets there, and all the other Philistine kings are like, "Um, why is David here? He should not be here. Don't you remember the songs they sang? Saul will kill his hundreds, and David will kill his thousands. Uh, Don't you realize that they were talking about us? Like, this David has been murdering us, and has been, well, not murdering, but taking the vengeance of the Lord on him, but he's been taking us. Why Why is he here? And so they say, send him home. We don't want him here because he's, he's uh, we're afraid that he's going to turn on us in the midst of the battle. So what happens at the end of chapter 28, 29, it says, Achish the king said to David, I know that you are pleasing in my sight like an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said he must not go up with us to the battle. Now then, arise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who have come with you. And as soon as you have arisen early in the morning and have light, depart. So David arose early, he and his men, to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. This hike was a long way. Why? We see in verse chapter 30, it took them 3 days. The third day they arrived. So they left at daylight and we don't know what day of time of day they arrived on the third day, but apparently there was still light. But that tri- that trek was over 50 miles. So you have an army with armor traveling back for 50 miles in two two and a half days, and it's not easy hiking. They they had to go up a mountain range, walking through some pretty hilly country, and they arrive at Ziklag, and what a sight they see. I I, I can't imagine you. You've been, just been told you can't fight. It was the grace of God, of course made the Philistines not want him to fight with them. But they get there and everything's burned. Their houses are... I mean, can you imagine walking up to a field that used to be a home or a a city burned to the ground? Nothing, just ashes. And no one there, nothing. Not a single person left behind. And no one killed. That's even more amazing. It's like, burned it with fire, but no one was killed. So in verse 3, we see that view. They they came and find it. Then verse 4, it's where I really want to start. We have David. Who is David at this point? Who is he? He's the anointed king of Israel. What's he doing? He's running from the guy that God said he's not going to be king anymore. David is filled, has the Holy Spirit upon him. The Spirit is on him. And what is Saul? He has nothing. He's completely been cast away. He's walked away from the God who gave him his rulership. The difference is Saul was the man's choice. David was God's choice. We can't forget that when we come here. And so who were all these people with him? Others who had been run out. People who had fought with David. Men, it says, sometimes who were pretty rough characters. Almost like mercenaries today. They, they weren't the kind of people that most people wanted to hang out with. But these hardened soldiers, these these men who had been fighting for a long time, began to weep so much so that they had no more strength to weep. I can't imagine you 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 see this scene. You see these men crying there's no hope for us everything's gone we have no homes no family nothing these hardened men weeping in the middle of this wherever this town was and I I would guarantee you if you made a movie of this that scene would be a compelling scene you would say there's no chance that they're going to have any hope in this movie there's no hope here I mean, these are, I I want to be clear, these were hardened soldiers. Men had experienced running from kings. And yet, here they are, weeping to the point where I just imagine that they're all just on the ground, just weak with no strength within them. It reminds me of Numbers chapter fourteen, where they come back and give the you have the, the, the majority report of ten versus the twelve the two who actually gave a good report of the land. And it says all the people it's the exact same Hebrew words wept until they had no strength. And it's a similar result, they wanted to stone Caleb and Joshua. And Moses, they wanted to blame Moses for the problem. These people, they began verse 6. So this, this didn't just affect the men. It affected David and his wives. His wives were gone too. It wasn't like he didn't feel the pain that they did. That's the thing. David had lost just as much as they had. There was no difference between David and the men except what he did. Afterwards, So what we see here, moreover, verse 6, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. I know I would be distressed if I knew a crowd of angry, bitter, upset soldiers were about to pick up stones and stone me to death. Why did they want to stone him? It says, for for the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and daughters. They had had their most and only prized possession. They had been on the run. They didn't care about the houses, the city, but their children, their wives, the most valuable thing that they had on earth had been taken away. This, I, this word, distressed, has another meaning in Hebrew, to be bound. Like, he felt like he couldn't go anywhere. Like, the, the, the feeling of heaviness that was over him was like chains. That's how he felt. And it's used in the Old Testament constantly to describe the worst of situations. But there was a difference between them and David. What happened? What did David do? It says, but David. When you see a but, that's a really good transition point. They're comparing the people who wanted to stone David with what David did. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David didn't go... Look in the mirror and say, man, I'm strong. He didn't try to make himself feel good. You're not as bad as everybody's saying. He didn't, I mean, there's so much that our world today says, well, if you, need, if you want to get past these troubles and trials and things you're going through, you just need to find it in yourself. If you find yourself, you'll be okay. No. <laughs> if we find ourselves, we'll realize we need Jesus. If we actually do. Because it's only in Christ and His sacrifice on the cross that we can be strengthened to do and to overcome and have the victory. We're not going to get those things back if we find our strength in our own ability. This is, honestly, I feel like this is the, the pits for David. The worst situation of his life at this point. The only situation in his life that I think could compare is when his son turns against him in the end of his life. That's the only time I can think of in David's life when he experiences worse than this moment. I mean, he is at the bottom of the barrel. He's scraping and he said, you know what, I may be at the bottom, but I have a Lord and Savior. This word, he, it's the same expression that we saw when I was doing Leviticus, the Lord his God, Yahweh Elohim. God had chosen David. He was God's choice of king. So David said, I'm going to him. He chose me. He's going to make it. He's going to give me the strength I need. I I, I thought about this verse, and I, I just thought about, man, there's so many psalms. So I want us to turn really quick. Psalm 86, it's possible that some of these were written at this time. We're not going to read all of these psalms. There's three of them. We're just going to read some sections of them. Psalm 86, it says, Incline your lo- ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am afflicted and needy. Preserve my soul, for I am a godly man. O you my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I cry all the day long. Make glad the soul of your servant for you, O Lord, I will lift my soul. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive, abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Give heed to the voice of my supplications. For in the day of trouble... I will call on you and you will answer me. There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. He's crying out, but he's also reminding himself in his prayer who God is. So, let's look at Psalm 80, Psalm 103. I did a, a little thing on this a while back. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. He's commanding Himself to bless the Lord. He didn't want to, His soul was saying, ah, I want to curse the Lord. But He's commanding Himself, the word bless here is a command in Hebrew. Verse 2, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. I would not be surprised if this was not the psalm that he wrote at this time who pardons all your iniquities and who heals all your diseases who redeems your life from the pit who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle we could keep reading but this whole point is he's commanding his soul, and then he goes on to talk to his soul later on. Like he says, he, he has not dealt with us according to our sins. What's he? He's talking to himself and his soul as though they're two people <laughs> in the plural. And he says, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens above and the earth, so great is his love and kindness toward those who fear him. And lastly, Psalm 43. I believe that if we're going to get over weeping, if we're going to stop weeping and stop living in what has happened to us and see God transform our lives, it starts here. If we are not willing to strengthen ourselves in the Lord our God, then we might as well shutter the doors, walk outside, and never come back. And, it, and this, this involves our lives, period. Individually as a church, Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. Deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. For you are God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? O send me your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of the Lord, to my God, to God my exceeding joy, and upon the lyre will praise you, O God, my God. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you so disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. The psalmist was so good at writing psalms like this. Why? Because that was his means. He was constantly strengthening himself in the Lord. We don't necessarily see it, but I can't imagine you're sleeping in a cave, constantly running from a guy who is no longer God's choice for king, and you're wondering, God, why did you even anoint me? Because ever since you anointed me, my life has been terrible. (laughs) I've been in constant peril people are chasing me i i have had a few victories i've had a had some good times but really it's been pretty much downhill i think some of us feel that way we've walked with the lord and we've seen his goodness but we've also felt like we've been in the pit maybe we're in the pit today maybe we're crying we've lost our strength we have no hope But once David strengthened himself, that is number one. That is most, if we aren't strengthening ourselves in the Lord, we can't, why would we expect to hear from a God we don't know? Why would we expect to hear from a God that we can't remember who He is? So we've got we've to go to the Word. We've got to know who God is. Strengthen ourselves in who we know God is. And then, verse 7. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Himelech. This verse really made me start to question, why in the world was the priest with David? And why did the priest have the ephod? Because he said, please bring me the ephod. And he brought it to him. Why was the priest with the ephod with David? So I I went back and looked. And you remember, David came to Ahimelech and asked for the bread to eat. And the sword of Goliath, and he got both? Well, what happened? There was a wicked man named Doeg, the Edomite, a child of uh, Esau. Descendant of Esau. He's there. He sees it. Saul comes. Have you seen David and Ahimelech say, Yeah, we gave him bread and and uh, the sword of of Goliath and and Paul's, or Saul is extremely upset, angry, and says, why did you help this man who hates our nation, in a sense? And and he's, the priest is like, you mean the guy that's been fighting for you, king? The The man who's been putting his life on the line to see the Philistines defeated? And then Saul tries to get his men to kill the priest. None of them will do it. And then he says I'll give whatever to whoever does it and Doeg this evil man kills 83 priests right there. All the family of Abiathar were killed. He was the only one that escaped. And he took the ephod with him. Where did he go? He went to David. He knew he knew. By the way, Saul reacted that God was not with him anymore. God was not with him so he was going to he didn't care if he had to live in the wilderness if he had to live in caves he was going where the God, the man of God was he wasn't going to stay with that man Saul he knew he was a man of sin and so he went and it's interesting why didn't David I kind of mentioned this why didn't David ask Abiathar to come with the ephod before he went up to Jezreel. It's an interesting thought. Because Abiathar wasn't in Ziklag or he would have been with the Malachites. Right? Because they came back and no one was there. Everyone had been taken. So Abiathar must have went up with them. It's not like Abiathar didn't know. So it's a side note, but I think it's interesting how Abiathar got there. That all his family had been killed. And if you think about this, Abiathar eventually, he's the last descendant of Eli. If you remember the story of Eli, what did God tell Eli? He said, I will make it where none of your descendants are priests anymore because he didn't deal with sin. And so at the end of David's life, Abiathar made an alliance with the wrong son. And Solomon said, I'm not going to kill you because you served my father well, but you're not going to serve in the priesthood anymore. And that filled the prophecy. So this man, Abiathar, was the priest the entire lifetime of David as king. But still, God took his role and fulfilled his, his promise to Eli. It wasn't a good promise, but it was the truth because he ignored sin. And Abiathar wasn't a perfect man. But he wasn't about to stay in the camp of the sinners. It's a side note. But anyways, David needed the word of the Lord. He knew that it didn't matter what the men thought. He had strengthened himself in the Lord, and he knew who God was. He knew who his God was. And he said, he inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall we pursue this band?" I think the question kind of would be, I want to go pursue this band, but is this your will, Lord? I, f- I feel like that's more like when he says, "Shall I pursue this band?" That's his i his thought is, "Lord, is it your will that I pursue this band? I want to. I want to get this back. But if you're not going to go with me, I'm not going." And he says, "Shall I overtake them? Will I not only catch up to them but defeat them? Will I have the victory?" So that's the second step, we have to inquire of the Lord. We strengthen ourselves in the Lord. We want to get over weeping, we need to strengthen ourselves in the Lord. Stop moping around thinking we are something because the circumstances around us look bleak. Churchill could have just said, you know what, it's awful. Let's just lay down and tell Hitler to come over. That's what he could have said, but no. In our in our case, we need to strengthen ourselves in the Lord and then inquire of the Lord, Lord, what is your will? We know you are a great God. Why are you doing what you're doing? Why am I going through this terrible time? Whatever it may be, whether it's physical, a spiritual situation, emotional, whatever it is, why am I going through this? And guess what happened? He had strengthened himself in the Lord. He had inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him. What a contrast. Saul could not get in touch with the Lord. Why? He didn't know Him. He hadn't strengthened himself in the Lord. And guess what? He went and looked elsewhere. But here David seeks the Lord, and he finds Him. And what does God say? He says, pursue That's affirmative, yes. And he says, For you will surely overtake them, and you will surely rescue all. In the Hebrew, the word surely is actually like overtaking you will overtake. That's how you say it. In the Hebrew they put they use the verb like an adjective in front of another verb. So it's like overtaking, you will over or it would kind of be better like overtakingly you will overtake. It'd be kind of like, victoriously, you will conquer. It's kind of the same idea. Like, he's saying, there is no chance that you won't. This is absolutely going to happen. And then when he says rescue, rescuing you will rescue all. This is like, in in the Hebrew language, this is like the most affirmative way that God spoke to his people when he said something was going to happen. He He would use two words one like an adjective and the next one as a verb I, it's interesting to me i like grammar i know that sounds weird but it it makes it clear to us that god is going to give him everything back yeah he doesn't have his house is not going to appear on his way back i will say that his, his house isn't going to come from the ashes but god is going to give him everything back that was taken including his women, his wives, and then the wives and children of those that are with him. So David has inquired of the Lord. He's strengthened himself in the Lord. He's inquired of the Lord. It's time to fight. That's the third point. We have to fight. We can't just get strength in the Lord, talk about how great God is, inquire of the Lord, and just sit down. That's not worth it. We have to fight. So, verse 9 David went, he and 600 men who were with him, and came to the brook Besser. So, this brook was about 15 miles from Ziklag. So, these men had hiked 50 miles in two days, two and a half days. They get home, they're in a wreck emotionally. Mentally, physically, they're just weak, but somehow they get up the strength to hike another fifteen miles. So I think they must have arrived in Ziklag fairly early in the morning because they get there and they have to leave some behind. Why? Verse ten, talking. He he actually talked about those left behind remain in verse ten. But David pursued. He didn't give up. He had been strengthened in the Lord. He knew the word of the Lord. He knew he would overtake them and have the victory. So he pursued, he and 400 men. For 200 were too exhausted to cross the brook. I mean, many of us, if we had gone through, if we had hiked 50 miles in two days, come back to find everything gone, our most. Precious possessions on earth are the people that we cared about most gone I don't know that we would have left Ziklag I'm pretty sure that if we got to the brook of Besser we probably thought we were going to die and that's probably how they felt the 200 that didn't go but David he didn't hold it against those men he understood he was a good leader because later on if you, We're not going to read it today, but if you read the rest of the story, when they came back with the spoils, guess what? David said, you worthless men, we're going to give them back theirs. And they're going to get some spoil too, because just because they stayed with the baggage doesn't mean that they're any any less likely to be used. And so I would take from that that it doesn't matter. Maybe we are too exhausted. We need... Somebody to fight for us in the church. Sometimes we need it. There's people in this body who need us to fight with them. There are people we know who, they don't have the strength to fight. And we are called as brothers to fight with them. Fight for them. Through the power of the Lord. Not in our own strength. Because there's no way that (laughs) David and these 400 men had natural strength. Why? We're going to get there. So, verse 11, they find an Egyptian by chance. Oh wait, we don't believe in that. What? God had caused this Amalekite man, a wicked man, to leave the Egyptian because he was sick. And this guy hadn't eaten or drinking for three days. So, David and his men, they didn't know where he was from. They didn't know what group he was with. But what did they do? They gave him bread and drink, then they gave him more food before he ever talked to them. They showed kindness to this man, despite the fact that he could have been an Amalekite. They didn't know. I mean, the Amalekites and Egyptians are close enough in in geography to be to not look that different. So it's not like they looked at him. Well, he's Egyptian, so we're going to feed him. No. David was a kind man. Even in the midst of his trouble and trials, he was caring for this man. And then, so we, we see he, he's been fed. Verse 13, it says, And David said to him, To whom do you belong? And this is a, a weird question. Like, why did he think he belonged to somebody? It's possible that in that time they would bore out an ear to To mark someone or or even a tattoo back in those days to something on the skin to show that somebody belonged. So David had an understanding that this this man belonged to somebody. He was a slave, a servant. And then he said, Where are you from? So David didn't just assume, oh, he's a Malachite, I'm just gonna. We're we're just gonna take his life, get rid of it. He's no help to us. No. He wanted to know where he's from, and he said. I am a young man of Egypt, a servant of an Amalekite, and my master left me behind when I fell sick three days ago. That was a pretty bad man. I mean, he's a servant, he's serving him, and yet at the moment he falls sick, see you later, we're going to just discard you, you're, you're of no value to us anymore. But God used the, the wickedness of that man for the good of his people. God had ordered, ordained the events of what was going on for a purpose. I believe to show David that even in his worst situation, he was with him. In the worst situation, God brought him to the lowest low and showed David, I am everything for you. You must find your strength in me. You must hear from me, and then you must fight. And then he also told him about what had happened. He said, We made a raid on the Negev of the Sherathites, the Philistines. So the Malachites were notorious for attacking the weak. They were kind of like the lions in Africa. They, they, they wait to see who the straggler is and then they pounce on them. Who's that remind you of? Satan? He's seeking to devour. That's why we have to build each other up, strengthen one another. So the Judah, he, they also went to the, land, the southern part of Judah and of Caleb and Ziklag. All these men were where? They were in the Jezreel Valley, ready to fight. So all the soldiers and warriors were gone. And the Malachites are like, ha, ha, ha. They're all gone. We're going to go get us some, some spoil. Go get us a new wife and some new children, some slaves, some food, some cattle, sheep. They went up to take advantage. Their guard was down. No one to protect them. They were oppressing the helpless, the victims. It's interesting. Of all the other places, they didn't burn them. Only Ziklag. Why? I think if you read back, I think it's 1 Samuel twenty-six. David had been raiding the Amalekites, had been attacking them, driving them back, and so they knew where David lived. And when they knew that David was gone, they're like, "We don't like. Da- We're afraid of David when <laughs> when he's there. But if he's not there, then." We can go at our spoil, and and uh, we'll be good. We just get in and get out, and we won't have any problems. In verse 15, David said to him, Will you bring me down to this band? He asked him. He didn't say, Hey, you're going to show me where this group is. He, he realized he had a desire to ask him to do that, and he said, and the 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 young man replied he said swear to me by god that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master and i will bring you down to this band and this is really interesting he didn't use the name of an egyptian god he made him swear by elohim he knew the god of israel he knew who the god of david was it wasn't a it wasn't a question of who was the powerful god he didn't say swear by my god the egyptian god he knew that that was a useless god he didn't say swear by this amalekite god he said swear by your god why because i know god is with you the amalekites knew god was with david that's why they attacked while he was gone swear by your god And apparently he did because, verse 16, when he had brought him down. It's pretty much implied, David said, yes, I'm not going to give you back to that slave holder, and I will not kill you. So, when he had brought them down, behold, I like this behold here, I think it's really uh, helpful Because it kind of gives us a picture of something. It's kind of like, can you believe it? They arrive, can you believe it? Behold, can you believe it? I mean, what an easier way to fight. They were all spread on the land eating, drinking, and dancing. They were not expecting David to be there. They thought, man, David's up at the battle. He's not going to be back for like five, six days, if that. Man, we have all the time in the world. We got, we got far enough away that there's no way he's coming back to get what belongs to him. So they're partying. I mean, they think, it's kind of like the end of a Uh, some football games and basketball games like the 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 fans rush the field those that know like sports at all and then they're like up there was time on the clock and there was a foul or (laughs) there was a penalty and there's time on the clock and then I think the national championship this year it flip-flopped the game one second they thought they had won it all and then nope there's time on the clock There was still hope, and they lost it all. The devil has not won. While we still have breath in our lungs, there is hope. That's what I want us to say. See, we are not to give up. We are to fight. We've we've been strengthened in the Lord. We have asked of the Lord, and now it's time to fight. If we want to stay in the weeping, we've got to do all three. We can't, or if we want to stay, weepers... We need to take up the willow, our harps out of the willow trees, and start fighting. So they're eating, drinking, dancing. I mean, they're they're having a good time. I mean, who wouldn't? They've got everything they want. They've got such a great spoil. All that they had taken from all these different people... I mean that was a successful victory. They thought they had they had won a few battles, but they hadn't won the victory. That's the difference. Satan may have won some battles here in our lives, but he hasn't got the victory. Why? We have eternal hope. Those that we've seen pass on to the other side. They're not moping. They're not crying. Oh no, what happened to me? No, they have the victory. We don't understand it. I absolutely see that. But we have a hope, eternal hope. I want to fight. I hope we do. So, just in case you thought David and his men had natural strength, this is what happened. Verse 17. David slaughtered them from the twilight until the evening of the next day. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had hiked 50 miles, found my wife and kids gone, and then hiked probably, we don't know from the Brook Besser to where they were encamped, but let's say that they had to hike another 20 to 30 miles to find the people. So you've just hiked somewhere between 60 and 70 miles in three days' time. And then you're fighting for 24 hours straight. If you think that was in the strength of a natural man, we've missed it. God empowered David. He said, you will surely overtakingly attack them, overtake them, and you will rescuingly rescue them. You're going to get it all back. Why? Because God is with him. He had found his strength in God. He had heard from God. And so he went out and fought with the power of God. And what happened? They killed everyone but the 400 young men who had camels and ran off. It's even interesting here. David would have never had to fight the Amalekites if Saul had obeyed God. Because God had told Saul, kill them all. And Saul said, uh, we, we want to save a few of them. So David would have never had this trial if Saul had been obedient. Had cut off the sin. So verse 18. So David recovered all. I mean that's God's word was true all that the Amalekites had taken and rescued his two wives and then just in case you didn't believe it verse 19 he says but nothing of theirs was missing how in the world did that happen how is that possible nothing was missing whether small or great it didn't matter the size it didn't make a difference Sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken for themselves. David brought it all back. So nothing that was taken from Ziklag didn't return with David. Everything that was taken in Ziklag was returned. God, in His everlasting knowledge, allowed David to go through the most difficult time in his life Not three days before he was crowned king of Judah. Isn't that incredible? The biggest turnaround in David's life, he was on the the crux of killing and fighting against his own people. Not three days before all this went down in Ziklag. He comes into the pit of his life the worst situation that he had faced up to that point, not three days before he was crowned king of Judah. Because it says, if you look in in, uh, in chapter 31, sorry, uh, it's actually 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Now, it came about after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, that David remained two days in Ziklag. On the third day, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes torn and dust on his head, and he came out. When he came to David, he fell on the ground and prostrated himself. Then David said to him, From where did you come? And he said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. David said to him, How many? Th- how did things go? Please tell me. And he said, The people have fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and Jonathan... His son are dead also. So, not long before David is made king of Judah and then eventually king of Israel, he goes through the most difficult time. God was preparing him to lead his people. Do you think David forgot this moment? Do you think David forgot at the moment? when he thought it was all lost his most precious possessions the people he loved the most had been taken from him everything that mattered to him was gone but God recovered it all and it was all in him David had strengthened himself in the Lord he had inquired of the Lord and he fought in the power of the Lord If we want to have the victory, we have to find it in Christ. There are so many examples, and the greatest of all, Christ on the cross. The devil thought he had the victory. But Jesus, when he died, he said, it is finished. Right? He knew the truth, but it took three days for his disciples to find out that it was true that Jesus had the victory over the devil. It felt like the worst night of their lives. They all walked away. But Christ, on Resurrection Sunday, rose from the dead, and He didn't just rise from the dead. When the, when the, the women came and found Him, He said, Go tell the disciples and Peter that I'm alive. Meet me in Galilee. Unfortunately, often we are, we're not David in this story. I know that's shocking. David is a type of Christ to, we're, we're, to learn from. We're more like the people who are ready to stone David. That's us. But we are called to be like David through the power of Christ. So if you leave with anything today... If you want to stop weeping and living in despair, you've got to strengthen yourself in the Lord. And then you need to inquire of the Lord, what is your will? How am I to overcome and to re- regain what the devil has taken? And you know how that's going to happen? You know how we're going to overcome? we got to start fighting. We can't sit in our seats and hope that something's just going to happen. Once we know the will of God, we need to fight for it. Because He is with us. And if we strengthen ourselves in the Lord, we know that He's with us. And that He has power to transform what's going on here, individually, health, healing, whatever it may be, the trial, the tempest that we're in, the storm, we have the victory. And some are going through trials that they don't have the strength. And that's where we're to fight for them in prayer. That's why prayer is such a big deal. It's one of our many ways of fighting the devil. We look at the armor of God. What's another way? The sword of the Spirit. How do we fight the devil? Remind him what the Word says. Stop relying on what feels good. Oh, I feel I feel this. I'm not saying feelings are not right at times. Sometimes they are. But if they don't line up with God's Word, I don't care what you say. (laughs) If we're aligned, if we feel good because we're in sin, there's a problem. We need to know the Word. We need to be constantly finding our strength in God, spending time with God, strengthening ourselves in Him, in His Word, and drawing close to Him so that we can. When we call out to the Lord, it's not that we're earning our entrance. It's building up our faith in Him. That's what strengthening ourselves is about. We're building up our faith so that when we do inquire of the Lord, not only do we hear, but we're empowered to go out in the resurrection power of Christ to overcome, whether it's to reach even the community that's very close to this church. There's neighborhoods that are very close that we could As a body, go out and and share the gospel with. I want to recover souls, do you? Not just, I don't want people to come back that lost, I'm not saying that left, I'm not saying I don't love them, but maybe God has caused everything to happen so that we will reach out to the lost. Maybe God has caused many of the things that we're going through so that we can see God's power to transform lives that have been lost. To see families that are completely gone at this moment. That God can transform their lives through the the power of the Holy Spirit. But if we aren't willing to go out, find the Lord's will. Lord, what what is the purpose of this church? And this is specific to our church. What is your purpose? How are we to go out and fight with your power to see this purpose how are we to pursue your purpose in our lives here as a church? Individually as a church, if we're here as a, as members, I believe that we can recover and discover God's provision for our church, the people that are supposed to be here in the future. Cuz if we just settle for what we have right now, we're just going to keep dying off. No offense to the olders, but I'm getting older too. That's not that's not hope for me. I want to I want to see a church that thrives. That's thriving that when my kids get older if if we're here and God hasn't called us to a a, a country where we're in a different place, but I want to be an outreach of the church. I don't just want to be the person that left the church and then suddenly, you know, 5 years from now, it's like why are, what are we doing here? We all have a call to fight, to seek God's will, and to know that He has the victory for us. And this, I'm applying this specifically to the church, but also in our, the physical trials that some are going through. The victory is there. Don't give up. Keep fighting. And seek the help of one another in prayer. Don't keep it to yourself. I'm not saying you got to blab every little detail, but... We should be able to fight together against these attacks of the devil against us. So, I want to quote this, the end of this again as a question to us. Will we fight on the beaches? Will we fight on the landing grounds? Will we fight in the fields and in the streets? Will we fight in the hills? Are we going to surrender? I pray we don't. I pray that our answer is yes. I'm going to fight whatever the cost. I'm going to fight on the beaches. I'm going to fight on the landing grounds. I'm going to fight in the fields and in the streets. And I will fight in the hills. I will never surrender. I'm not giving up. I hope you aren't. The story of, some of you know, Joshua Harris turning his back on God. That's a sobering thought. A person who seemed to have a relationship with the Lord has said, my wife and I are getting a divorce. We're walking away from God. And this isn't new. This is We all have seen this happen with high profile, low profile doesn't matter the the profile of the person, but walking away, I'm not surrendering. I don't care how bad it gets. By the power of Christ in me, I'm going to fight to the end. So I pray that you will and that God has encouraged you and if if needed, convicted you that we need to be strengthened in Him. We need to hear from Him and we need to fight. So I'm going to pray and I don't know if There's a a song to be sung, but if there is, then we'll sing it together. Father, we need Your power. We need Your strength to fight the fight. The good fight of faith, Lord. Help us not to give it up. This life as a Christian is a battle. We don't fight, though, Lord, with weapons of modern warfare, Lord. We fight with spiritual armor. With a sword of the Spirit, your word. And Lord, we desire today to have the victory, to fight the fight, and to know your will, Lord. Guide us as a church, guide us individually. Let us see the power of your Holy Spirit in our church, in our lives. That we'd see the sick, healed, the lost, saved. And not only saved, but discipled and and growing in their relationship with you. Lord, help each of us to see our role in this church. And Father, just thank you for giving me this word today. I know it was from you. I know it wasn't something that I came up with. And I just pray, Father, that we would be moved to worship you with our lives. We just pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.